Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. For those of you still here, thank you very much for, for hanging around, and big thank you to Richard for inviting me here today. Uh, my company, Lombard Street Research and Kemp Little, go back several years, and we're, we're very grateful to be asked to come here today and express our views on what is going on in the, the world economy at the moment. Now, enabling technology versus constraining regulation, um, it's not really a title that gave me much inspiration when I first heard it. I don't know much about enabling technology. I still have a phone with buttons, no touch screen, no internet, no email. Um, my wife, my friends, my colleagues think I'm still very old fashioned, but I quite like it. And I can't say I know a huge amount either about the new regulations that are affecting your industry. But I knew everything was not lost because we as a company probably know far too much about the uncomfortable path to 2020. And this is what I want to focus on this evening. So please bear with me. It's going to be going off at a slight tangent from what you've been talking about most of the day, but um, I hope you enjoy it. Now, when I left university in 2006, I had little idea how quickly the world economy and the global financial, financial system would be shaken to its roots. But at least I had an excuse. I'd been buried in models and statistical analysis for four years. Those actually practicing the dismal science in markets, in central banks, in governments, should have seen this coming. Far too many of them believed that this time was different. Memories of crises in the past had been forgotten. Instead, economic analysis had forged a very dangerous alliance with fancy mathematical models. Banks and the financial system more generally were entirely absent from those models. And I don't think anyone really grasped how fragile the global economic system had become and how hard it would be to generate sustainable recoveries in many of the world's largest economies. Now, in two or three years before the crisis occurred, a minority started to voice concerns about the build-up of debt and the potential damage that could arise if the global imbalances started to unwind. My own company started to write about such themes in summer of 2004. But I don't think any of the pessimists, and I include ourselves in this, really understood how grave the situation was, how unbalanced and distorted the world economy and the global financial system had really become, or how severe the downturning activity would be. <coughs> now, there's a huge amount to say about how we got here and how the world economy got into such a mess. I'm going to touch on some of these issues shortly. But this afternoon, this evening, is really about looking forward. How uncomfortable is the path to 20, 2020 actually going to be, both economically and politically? Now, if you look at financial markets today, sentiment has improved dramatically in recent months. Stock markets in this country, in the US, are now closing in on their record highs. If these are to be believed, the worst is well and truly over. Alternatively, investors could simply be letting out a collective sigh of relief. Those that lost their nerve in the first half of, this year, of last year may simply be taking advantage of what the European Central Bank has done and the postponement of the apparently imminent exit of Greece from the Eurozone. Now, I hope by the end of this speech, I will have convinced you just how uncomfortable the next few years are going to be. Crises and recessions that stem from too much debt and an overstretched banking system are longer and deeper than normal, and the recoveries from them tend to be slower and much weaker. And this is what we know about individual economies 
and national financial crises, with only a very small handful of global financial crises over the last two centuries, there is virtually no historical precedent to what we are currently going through. The most recent, obviously, was the Great Depression. Now, the French economy had a desperate time in the 1930s. By contrast, the US, and to a lesser extent the UK, came roaring back in the second half of the 1930s. But back then, demand was clearly boosted by an obvious factor, <coughs> namely the arms race in Europe and the build-up to World War II. Today, with the exception of Japan, pretty much every single government in the advanced world has turned to austerity to bring down one of the largest budget deficits in peacetime history. Arguably, the global banking system is also in worse shape than it was 80 years ago, and it faces a much tougher regulatory environment. But it's not just the sluggish economic growth that makes the road to 2020 dangerous. On our doorstep, the Eurozone is tearing itself apart without any obvious solution, as Sir Mervyn King recently put it. As the hand of extremist politicians is strengthened, political tensions between electorates and elites in Southern Europe are only going to grow. And arguments between core and periphery governments are equally plausible. After all, somebody in Europe has got to pick up the bill for this mess. Beyond Europe, there is also plenty to worry about. Will a Chinese economy that has become so dependent on wasteful investment and exports, i.e. the demand in other economies, be able to restructure and rebalance? If the Chinese economy does get stuck at a much lower growth rate, might Beijing become far more aggressive in its dealings with the US? It's already rattling its saber in front of the Japanese. Is there a danger of a real risk of conflict between China and Japan? The Economist, a generally sober reporter of foreign affairs, seems to think so. They recently said that China and Japan are sliding towards war as they squabble over five uninhabited islands in the East China Sea. And what of the Middle East and the Arab Spring? Amongst other things, the threat of military action in Iran continues to hover over oil markets and the world economy more generally. Be under no illusions. The global economic order that appeared to produce such significant gains in living standards for so many is under threat. The developed world's financial system, despite the pressure of markets and regulators, is still in poor health, most especially in the Eurozone. Excessive private and public sector debt in advanced economies will act to constrain spending and demand for many years to come. Meanwhile, the necessary adjustment of currencies in many um, advanced economies and emerging economies is being hampered by very aggressive foreign currency intervention and capital controls in many emerging economies and even some developed markets. Inside the Eurozone, desirable exchange rate realignments simply cannot occur. Now, for the moment, international support in favour of free trade and of open markets is relatively strong. But this is surely far from assured in a world of persistently sluggish growth, of high unemployment and increasingly populist <coughs> politicians. Advanced economies desperately need of higher levels of net immigration are already starting to pull up the drawbridge. Our own supposedly economically liberal government has an entirely incoherent stance towards immigration into this country. The US seems further than ever from wholesale immigration reform. The demographic pressures that immigration might help to alleviate are posing a major threat to the solvency of many Western governments. 
the pension and healthcare entitlements are unaffordable. But yet there's barely a whisper in favour of the necessary reforms. When it comes to the EU single market, hopes of a significant deepening are vanishing quickly as our own government takes the country down a path towards significant confrontation with our main European partners. So how do we end up here? How did so many people get it so wrong? For nearly three decades, the world rode a wave of rising prosperity driven by rapid globalization and free markets. Why is this order now under threat? Well, put simply, the dra dramatic improvement in living standards seen in advanced and in emerging economies was not sustainable. In the long run, the size of the global pie is determined by a few variables. The world's population, the skill and education of the workforce, the capital that workforce can use, and the rate of innovation, scientific discoveries, etc. The rapid world growth before the crisis was not necessarily unsustainable from the perspective of these drivers. Just take the vast movement of labor in China and India from the informal sectors of the economy to the market economy. This alone should have had a meaningful impact on the sustainable rate of growth the world could enjoy. But instead, the real problem was on the demand side. And what I mean by that is the pattern of spending that emerged in the world economic system and the buildup of debt that was required to fuel that boom. There was a group of debtor economies. Let's call it the US, the UK, and the periphery Eurozone countries. These ran large and persistent trade deficits for a number of years. By the start of the crisis, they had built up very large net external debt positions. They had borrowed significantly more from everyone else in the world than foreigners had borrowed from them. Many of these booms were accompanied by booms in property markets. And although not true of the UK, we saw bursts of pretty extreme construction activity in many of them. Many of them became uncompetitive vis-a-vis -vis their trading partners. In a few, Greece is the most obvious example, inept, let's call them corrupt governments, racked up huge piles of debt as spending raced ahead of tax revenues. But predominantly, the big build-up in debt, the build-up of leverage, was in households, businesses, and the banking sector. Now, on the other side of the ledger, we have the credited countries, most obviously Germany, Japan, and China. They all ran very large <coughs> trade surpluses and were big net lenders of capital to everyone else in the world. Private and government debt was relatively restrained, and GDP growth was generally driven by exports. Banks in these countries channeled large amounts of domestic savings into the global capital markets. They helped to finance a lot of the leverage booms in the debtor economies. So don't be fooled into believing this is a world of sinners and saints. All of the borrowing that took place had to be financed by someone. And it turns out that the behavior of these supposedly pious creditors has much, if not more, to do with what went wrong than supposedly immoral debtors. Now, currency manipulation in emerging markets and also the existence of EMU itself in Europe also help fuel this buildup of debt. When currencies are floating, they help to prevent the emergence of imbalances between nations. In those economies where borrowing is too high, where demand is running far too far ahead of the underlying capacity of an economy to produce output, the currency would be expected to fall. In the credit of the lending economies, where exports and capital outflows are booming, currencies should appreciate. But before the crisis, these trends were prevented from happening on an absolutely vast scale. Many emerging economies, contrary to one, what one, everyone would expect, 
were providing capital to the rich, advanced economies such as the US. Capital was flowing from poor to rich nations. <coughs> but this was not because private investors were doing it. Instead, it was because of vast efforts by the authorities in many emerging economies to hold their currencies down. Policymakers, much like quantitative easing today, would print a load of domestic currently electronically and use it to go and buy foreign assets. And in this case, it was a lot of low-risk dollar debt. And by the end of 2007, the central banks in the emerging world in aggregate had accumulated over $4 trillion of foreign currency reserves, not for half the national output of the emerging world. Now, manipulation of exchange rates had two critical consequences. One, it prevented the normal adjustment of exchange rates we would expect to see. Secondly, and more importantly, it added a lot of downward pressure to interest rates in the debtor economies like ours, in like the US's, like Southern Europe. The extra demand for things like dollar-denominated debt pushed down the rates on government bonds in the US. It also had indirect effects as well. Lower returns that, say, could be earned by pension funds insurance companies would force them into riskier securities for them to try and earn a high yield. Many of these securities were bonds and debt issued by the banking system, so the banking system could therefore fund itself more cheaply and in larger quantities. Because banks' interest costs were lower and because market funding was that much more plentiful, they could expand their assets, their loans, to you and I. Existing bank customers benefited in the form of dramatically lower interest rates. But importantly, it also enabled banks to provide a lot more credit to those borrowers previously unable to get access to it. So you might ask, well, what on earth were policymakers doing here in the US and elsewhere to stop all this borrowing? Well, they tried, sort of. In the final years of the credit boom, central banks did start to raise policy interest rates. Here in the UK, the base rate of the Bank of England hit five and three quarters. But it was all too little, too late. Central banks had completely missed the giant explosion of leverage and the building fragility of the banking system because they'd become so focused on simply inflation. Inflation was low and stable, so why did they need to do anything? They lost sight of their equally important role in ensuring wider financial stability. But their toolkit was also devoid of any weapons that have kept, could have helped to temper the boom in credit. Before the crisis, it was the Bank of England, not the FSA, that had responsibility for the safety of the banking system overall, yet it simply had no mechanism at all for taking away the punch bowl before the party got out of hand. But bank regulators are not to blame either. They failed miserably across the advanced world to take a much tougher stance towards individual banks. This is as true as the FSA in this country as it is of regulators in most others. Regulation became highly pro-cyclical. The bigger the boom got, the looser the regulation became. When the crisis struck, bank balance sheets looked strong to many people. As we all know now, this could not have been further from reality. So weak bank regulation undoubtedly played a role in furthering the credit boom. I think most importantly, banks were allowed to operate with a buffer of equity capital that was simply far too small relative to the assets that those banks were holdings. Now, a bank's equity is the first line of defense when it starts making losses on loans, on securities it might hold. It protects the depositors and other creditors of the bank from those losses. But regulators didn't really look at bank's equity. Instead, they were completely focused on much broader measures of capital, which hid banks' true balance sheet health. 
Within months of the crisis starting, investors realized they'd been duped. These regulatory capital ratios conveyed little useful information. Confidence in the solvency of the banking system was shattered. At this point, wholesale market investors in banks across the advanced world withdrew the financing they had previously provided, and that was when the run on banks started. Now, these problems were compounded by the fact that banks had a very small buffer of truly liquid assets. Banks keep such a buffer in order to raise cash when they fall on hard times, in exactly the same way that a manufacturing or retailer keeps money in the bank to tide them over when cash flow is strained. But it turned out this buffer wasn't liquid at all. It was stuffed full of risky securities. Regulators knew this and turned a blind eye for several years. When panic came, banks couldn't sell the securities, unsurprisingly, and raise the cash they needed. So banks had a big shortage of equity capital. They didn't have enough liquid assets, and they had highly fun <coughs> fragile funding structures. It was a toxic combination. Regulators didn't simply take away the punch bowl at the right time. They were, in fact, topping it up, just as the party was getting out of hand. To make matters worse, the major cross-border banks had become so complex that nobody, including the bank's own managers, really understood the risks that they were taking individually, or in many ways, more importantly, the danger that the system overall was actually in. In hindsight now, it's obvious why the collapsing confidence and activity was so extreme. Equally, it now should be clear that the hangover from such a party is going to be painful and long-lasting. Now, central banks in the world are desperately trying to revive growth in our moribund Western economies. Policy rates are effectively at zero. To provide additional stimulus, central banks have taken a lot of unconventional steps. In Britain, the US, Japan, we've seen central banks buying large quantities of government debt. The aim is to push up asset prices, reduce interest rates, and hopefully to cut, encourage extra spending. And although none of them would admit this publicly, this action is clearly intended to push their currencies down as well. But for all of these efforts, central banks have so far been unable to bring about a lasting recovery in many economies. Although the debate isn't really settled yet, I don't believe it's because central banks are firing blanks. Their policies, in my view, have gone a long way to preventing a much deeper and more prolonged downturn in activity. It's simply that they're fighting against such extremely powerful forces holding back demand and activity. Households, companies are repairing their balance sheets, they're cutting back on spending, they're reassessing the sustainability of the debts they previously built up. There are some parts of the private sector that may be incentivized to spend because of what central banks are doing. But these may either not be able to get access to credit or they're simply too concerned about the future to take on any new debt today. We can also look to ongoing stress in the banking system probably most acute in the Eurozone, least acute in the US as part of the problem. Now, central banks cannot directly affect the cost of loans that you and I pay when we go to our bank. And the lasting effect of this crisis is that investors in financial markets are now charging banks a substantially higher spread above the policy rates to lend to them. The banks pass on these costs to you and I as customers, and we then pay far higher borrowing rates when we turn up for a loan. But the problems run far deeper than this. Banks have become extremely risk averse since the crisis emerged. 
They have, for instance, significantly reduced the amount of loans that are going to riskier borrowers and the conditions they place on loans more generally. Now, the pressure on banks to repair their balance sheet is partly driven by markets, and there's little that policymakers really can do about it. Investors want to invest in safer <laughs> banks. But it's also the result of a tidal wave of new regulation designed to curb the worst excesses of bank behavior. The direction of travel, to me, is logical. The banking system must never again become a clear and present danger to the wider economy and the government's solvency. However, efforts to make banks safer undermine, at least in the short run, the ability of banks to make loans and to finance the recovery. Tougher bank regulation is, in my view, one of the central reasons why bank credit for certain borrowers remains so scarce and why central banks' efforts to revive economies have been less successful than many people had hoped. Now, I know that regulators have a difficult balance to strike, but in my view, their actions are making the hangover worse, not better. Now, so too is the substantial fiscal tightening that is now taking place across the advanced world. Last year, governments in the advanced economies undertook the largest coordinated retrenchment in post-war history. This year, the cuts are going to be even larger, in large part because of the tax hikes now being implemented in the US. In most cases, I would argue this consolidation is unavoidable. Without efforts to bring down budget deficits, government debt levels would spiral out of control. In a few countries, certainly, aggressive upfront consolidation is absolutely necessary. But I would argue that in many, potentially most others, governments have sought the wrong balance between the need for growth and the need for austerity. When the private sector is looking to pay down debt, when the banking system is in poor health, when uncertainty amongst households and businesses is very elevated, governments' spending and tax policies have an unusually large effect on the wider economy. Because of the damaging effects on tax revenues and on unemployment, this makes it much harder for governments to reduce their budget deficits. We can see this in our own backyard. Put bluntly, this may not be a very good time for significant budget tightening. A lot of this has to do with the elephant in the room, the thing I haven't mentioned yet, which is the crisis in the Eurozone. For many businesses, this is their biggest worry. New investment is being postponed, hiring is being halted. Cash that might have been spent on R&D, on worker training, on new projects is simply being hoarded. Some households that may want to buy a new car, buy a new home, are being dissuaded from making those purchases. For the UK in particular, the weakness of the Eurozone economy is also having a major depressing effect on our exports. Now, given recent developments in financial markets, some of you may be forgiven for thinking the Eurozone was over the worst. Undoubtedly, the actions of Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank have once again bought European politicians some time. But little of substance, in my view, has really changed over the last few months. Greece is still bankrupt. Its politicians and its European backers are enforcing an economic agenda that is causing untold harm to the Greek economy and its wider society. Cyprus has now been dragged down by the mess in Greece. The other club men economies remain mired in recession. <coughs> Unemployment is hitting unprecedented levels in the post-war era, and yet the onslaught of fiscal tightening continues unabated. Private sector debt burdens remain extreme and are made worse by the very considerable difficulties facing banks across Europe.
Meanwhile, the radical overhaul of Eurozone institutions that is necessary if the Euro is going to survive remains on the drawing board. Incremental changes have been made over the last couple of years, undoubtedly. Germany has shown an unexpected degree of pragmatism in its dealings with many European governments. But I think without wholesale changes to the architecture of monetary union, its future is in real danger. There is clearly a large part of the European elite that believes passionately in the European project. The steps that need to be taken are generally agreed now. But as yet, there is considerable disagreement about how we get to the finishing line. More than anything, really, this reflects the fundamental and long-standing disagreement about Europe's future that exists between Paris and Berlin. A coalition of sovereign states in the warm embrace of monetary and financial union, or a fully-fledged United States of Europe with social democratic values and Germanic financial discipline. And I would argue we are no nearer to reconciling these inherently antagonistic visions of the future of Europe. Now, it's entirely conceivable that over the next few years, European politicians find a way out of this mess. When push comes to shove, the electorates in Southern Europe may decide that the bitter pill of retrenchment and reform will serve them better than populist politicians who lead them down the path to Eurozone exit. But in my view, this is far from assured. History tells us that economic hardship and political upheaval are frequent bedfellows. It also tells us that no country has successfully managed to escape the kind of trap facing periphery economies today without a combination of massive currency devaluation and widespread default. Neither is possible inside monetary union, the former for obvious technical reasons and the latter for political ones. Now, the dark cloud of uncertainty emanating from the Eurozone, I would argue, is going to be with us for a very long time to come. This is clearly particularly problematic for us here in the UK, given our proximity and our exposure to the Eurozone. Personally, I'd be extremely surprised if all existing members of EMU are still in the club in five years' time. I simply don't believe that the social and political structures in Southern Europe are strong enough to withstand the damage the next few years are going to cause. And I don't believe there is the political appetite in Northern Europe, Germany most obviously, to foot the bill that is going to be required to restore the Eurozone to health in its current form. But while the dangers are most stark in the Eurozone, risks of wider political upheaval remain. The crisis has caused a massive squeeze on the living standards of households across the Western world. The flip side is that businesses have kept them for themselves a much larger chunk of the national cake. Now, before the crisis, the inequality that was resulting from the financial boom was tolerated. The rising tide was thought to be lifting all boats. But now the tide's gone out, and I think inequality between rich and poor, between the household sector and the business sector, is likely to become a much more toxic issue. I don't think we should be surprised if governments systematically go after the income and wealth of the corporate sector as a means to restoring fiscal balance over the years ahead. Or for that matter, the free markets, which though essential for future human prosperity, are increasingly viewed as the cause of this crisis, not its ultimate salvation. Now for the optimists amongst you, there is certainly one place to look, and that's the US. Certainly for the first time in my view since this crisis started, there are tentative signs of a solid and sustainable recovery. The headwinds I've just talked about 
are going to prevent the US from returning to the kind of boom period that we saw in the mid-80s and the mid-90s. There is going to be lasting damage from this crisis for the US. Nevertheless, the Federal Reserve has got the US economy into a position from where it can now grow. The big risk lies in Washington. Fiscal policy in the US is going to have to be tightened if US government debt is going to stabilize. A good dose of tightening is already planned for this year, and more is on the way. But there is an increasingly divided and partisan Congress that for the moment cannot agree on a long-term plan to bring down the US budget deficit. Uncertainty is everywhere. And I think whatever the final outcome, the process is likely to be pretty messy. And at this point in time, I think the danger is for an overly aggressive fiscal tightening and a stuttering US recovery. The world's locomotive may be returning to health, but it's nowhere near its top speed yet. And finally, a few remarks about our own little island. <clears throat> in some ways, Britain has weathered the storm not too badly. Unemployment is contained. The government has outlined a credible long-term fiscal plan, something I would add no other major government in the world has so far done. Markets seem to have greater confidence in British banks than those in continental Europe. And I think that's partly to do with the aggressive support the Bank of England has provided. The pound is 20% cheaper than it was five years ago, and UK businesses are generally in decent financial health. Even so, the country still faces a difficult road ahead. The country's over-indebted. The banking system is still pretty weak and is still far too big to be bailed out by the government. This matters clearly because a catastrophe in Europe remains a possibility. Our major trading partner is unlikely to see a return to growth for some years. This is one of the reasons why growth in the UK is likely <laughs> to be sluggish and unemployment relatively high for quite some time. And there is still a very long way to go before the government itself returns to full health. There are going to be some good times and there'll be some bad times in the years ahead. Periods of reviving growth will no doubt give way to lots of media commentary that the worst is behind us, that a major corner has been turned. But I just finish on this. I don't think you guys should be under any illusion about the long, uncomfortable path to 2020. Thank you.